Well, the holidays are over. It was fun and very sparkly. And now it's time to put a whole lot of stuff away until next year. To start, try hanging any wreaths on a wall in the back of a closet or a garage, the same way you had them hanging out when they were out in your house. That way, they won't lose their shape or go flat, and you won't need any special packaging. There are tons more handy holiday cleanup tips on this episode. We asked our whole staff for the techniques they use at home to get rid of trees and pack away ornaments and lights. It turns out we've got some really smart people working here. Later on the episode, we tackle drafty houses with Henry Gifford, a brilliant plumber and author of Buildings Don't Lie, a book about the science behind the way heating and cooling systems, electrical systems, and other building materials work. Finally, in celebration of our forthcoming survival issue, we explain how to stay safe in a nuclear explosion and host an extra special survival-themed testing table. Stay safe and organized out there, y'all. I'm Jacqueline Detweiler, and this is the most useful podcast ever. So we have with us today Henry Gifford, who wrote a book called Buildings Don't Lie, Better Buildings by Understanding Basic Building Science, which sounds really awesome and really scientific and really complicated. How did you get into writing this book? What's your background? Well, I started buying apartment houses when I was 20, and I asked people why one building burns a lot more fuel than another, and nobody knew. People just said, well, that's the way it is. Well, there has to be a reason. There's a science to everything and just want to know how things work. And your book runs through all the different ways that you can lose heat, that you can bring in water, just all the different problems that can happen with houses and sort of the science behind them. Different costs of materials, labor, energy codes, higher standards of comfort, all these things combined. Things are changing faster and faster, so there's no more trial and error. It's becoming more and more necessary to understand the science behind what works and why in which situations, in which type of buildings, in which climate things work and don't work. Speaking of climate, one of the reasons we <laughs> called you is that it is freezing here in New York City. I'm not sure where you were based, but we were talking the other day about a lot of us are in old apartments, we're in old buildings, and we've got drafts, we've got cold this and that. And we were wondering, are there any standard tips that you would give scientifically for why an apartment or a house would be cold and drafty and any major mistakes that people tend to make that you could easily fix? Well, I'm in New York City also, but the problems in buildings in this cold weather is that the indoor air gets too dry. There's a field of science called psychrometrics, and it's the science of how much water vapor air can hold at what temperature. And it can be summed up in two short statements. Warm air can hold a lot of water vapor. Cold air cannot so the outdoor air is dry. That is the ratio of the weight of the water in the air to the air is very low. Would it help to put a humidifier in your house? Would that make it feel warmer yes. and make you less likely to get the flu? Yes, a humidifier makes you less likely to get the flu and makes you feel warmer. Oh. might not make you be warmer, <laughs> but you feel warmer if the humidity is higher. So... One key to being more comfortable indoors in the winter is to keep the humidity higher than it normally would be. So it might normally be 10 or 15 percent, and if we get that up to 40 or 50 percent, we will be much more comfortable and more healthy. And that will save energy because we don't have to heat the house to its higher temperature. But if you have a draft in your living room and you put a humidifier in there, the humid air is going to move out of the room, right? So it's not going to solve a drafty area. It's just going to solve a cool area, adding the humidifier? Well, you're trying to humidify your zip code. Right. <laughs> because <laughs> that air leaks back out. Yeah. But if you reduce the draft, then the humidifier might even see that, oh, the room is 50 
present now and turn itself off on its control. But in the real world, we don't have absolutes of no leakage, and we hopefully don't have such absurd leakage. So the humidifier does help because it does raise the humidity. And when we design new buildings, we design in some level of airtightness as much as we can, and we achieve some imperfect level of much better airtightness than most existing buildings have. That combined with a sane and code-required amount of ventilation results in a lower airflow through the space in the winter, which increases the humidity in the winter, which makes things more comfortable and healthy. Of course, in the summer, the air outdoors is more humid than indoors if you have an air conditioner. And so the hot, sweaty, moldy, high humidity indoors in the summer is also reduced by reducing the air leaks. Can you think of a reason why, I mean, I know like some apartments, some houses, they get these crazy like heat differentials almost in them. It's like all one building, but like one floor will be hot as crap. And then the next floor is freezing. And it seems to like move around depending on the day or whatever, or like it depends on the house. Is there some sort of scientific principle that creates that problem? Yes. The loads vary depending on wind. So if you have a leaky building and wind is blowing from the west, if it's winter, that increases the load on the heating system because the cold air is coming in on the west and leaving on the east side of the building. So the heating system, if it has a thermostat in every room, which is unheard of in this country pretty much, but there is a place where they do it. That place is called Europe. <laughs> and if the wind blows on the west side of a building in Europe, the radiator there turns up a little bit higher to meet the load and the radiator on the east side of the building is seeing air leaking across through the building that already got heated by the radiator on the west and maybe that radiator either turns lower or off to maintain the set point temperature. So then tomorrow when the wind blows the other direction, the thermostats respond and the east side radiator puts out more heat and the west side less and it evens out. But in this country, it's almost unheard of to have a thermostat in every room considered a higher cost. Of course, it's actually a lower cost because then the boiler can be smaller because the boiler or whatever you're using for heat no longer has to be large enough to overheat the leeward side of the building while you're merely adequately heating the windward side on the coldest night of the year. The engineering handbooks in this country used to say that until the 50s. And of course, the thermostats are a very small cost compared to making the whole system bigger. And so that's one of the reasons is that the mechanical systems are not capable of varying their output as the loads vary. And then you've got somewhat smaller differences in load attributed to solar gain or cooking, internal gains, we call it computers, fish tanks, whatever somebody's running. The books tell you how much heat and water vapor comes off a bowl of soup. Because if you're designing cooling for a restaurant, you better get it right. And simply putting it bigger is not a solution for either heating or cooling systems. Bigger is not better. Big enough is the best. It's another reason why the heating and cooling are uneven. It's because the systems are too big. Well, thank you for all of this. This has been awesome and super interesting. I mean, I think all the science is so cool. I mean, I remember the first time I took a physics class and learned that there's no such thing as cold, just absence of heat. And I like lost my mind. It was just so cool. I mean, some of the stuff it's hard to like really comprehend, but it's cool that you do it with buildings. So thank you so much for talking to us. My pleasure.
So Christmas is sadly over, and that means for a lot of you out there, and definitely for me, your house is full of decorations that now need to not be out. So we called pretty much everybody in the office, not everybody in the office, but a lot of our podcast regulars. We got Lara, we got Peter, and we got Kevin in here to talk about some of the things that you have either found online or that you use every year to get rid of your Christmas stuff and have it be nice for the next year. So let's start with Lara, because I feel like you had a crazy story about your family putting away Christmas lights. Yeah, I have nothing to put Christmas lights on in New York City, but my parents have a large house with a lot of bushes out front, and my brothers do this because I don't ever help with the Christmas lights. Um, (laughs) Whoops. Sexist. Um, Yeah, that's true. Or or she's just a jerk. You don't know that it's because she's a woman. It's probably both. (laughs) Probably both. But last year, my brothers devised this plan where one of my brothers drew like a very rudimentary sketch of like the outline of our house and each of the bushes in front of our house. And they numbered them from left to right, one, two, three, four, and however many bushes there were. And then when they were taking the lights off the bushes, they wrapped them and put them each into individual plastic containers by Mm -hmm. bush. Because what happens is at my parents' house, there are some long bushes, there are some tall bushes, and you never really know whether you need two short strings of lights and Uh. one long string and so on and so forth. So basically what this did was now when they go to put the lights on next year, they take box one and bring it to bush one and it's exactly as many lights as they need and they know that they work, hopefully still. And easy on, easy off. It's like Christmas lights by numbers. Yeah, exactly. Which sounds great because this is my first year with a really big tree. I've had a like small apartment for years. Yeah. So I have a tiny little tree. I got a normal size, like seven foot tree this year. And I was like, I think two strands of lights ought to do it. Nope. And then like four Always more strands. More than you think four you strands yeah. of lights later. I was like, well, all right. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. Peter Martin, what was yours? Yours was like a... I have a, two. Ooh. Are you ready for them? I am yeah, ready. One is one that I forget every year. But Christmas tree bags... Because we made a mess dragging our tree out of our apartment this year because it was so dead. Where do you buy a Christmas tree bag? I mean, I found it online and bought it, but I'm sure many, I'm sure like Walmart sells them. They're basically huge garbage bags. They're pretty thin. Probably be smart just to get a monster contractor bag that the tree wouldn't pull through. But I think they span, you can get like a five foot wide base and then it goes up to 10 feet to hold your tree. And you just lift the tree out of the stand, slide the bag underneath, and then it just wraps up around the Ooh, tree. Ooh, that'd be walk nice. Walk it out of your and house. You don't have pine needles all over Everywhere. the place. Yeah. The only yeah. thing it doesn't solve we had to pull ours to the door frame, and the door frame was too narrow. So it was just like scraping the sides <laughs> of the door and dropping needles there. I don't know how that's going to be handled. But yeah, the one I found was six bucks. So I bought it now. I'm going to put it with my tree stand, and then next year I'm ready. Ah, oh, there you go. The other thing my mom got us as a gift is from a company called Snapware, and it's a, it's three stackable drawers, basically, that have cardboard dividers in them. So you just put a couple ornaments in each one, and they click together. So you can do only one if you don't have a lot of ornaments, which we don't. But then as you expand, you just keep adding your layers. It's kind of great. Um, I bought all the stuff this year as my parents came up for Christmas for the first time. And I'm looking at my apartment, there's all these glass things, and I'm just like, where are these going to go, and how am I not going to break them? They don't break in here. And then also next year, you just grab your one little suitcase of ornaments. Yeah, take and it pull down, them out. And do there it. Wait, so you haven't cleaned up yet? No. So you're just using us? Obviously. That's what this podcast is for, is for me to use you guys to get stuff. And after, maybe you guys could all come over (laughs) if you're not busy. There's eggnog. Can you come show uh... me how to do all of this? I feel like we all have been using poor Roy that way for years, though. That's true. (laughs) That's true. I'm just mad right now because I'm, like, ruthless about taking the Christmas stuff down really quickly. Really? And I did everything wrong, and then we did this, and now I'm learning all the tips, and I can't use them. I figured I'd wait. I have a rule that I wait till after New Year's because I feel like New Year's, it should still look festive in your house. Mm -hmm. And then this, I mean, if you go past this coming weekend, I feel like. 
Oh, see, my dad's family is Russian, so we wait till Russian Christmas, which is like a week after New Year. Oh, okay. So, see, totally Russian fine. Orthodox I can just claim Christmas. that I'm Russian, like Lara. My apartment's small also, and I got a tree that was way too big for it. And so it literally <laughs> was like poking me in the face when I was sleeping, and I was like, I just can't. I can't do this anymore. <laughs> I guess I have two things also. So the first one, I don't like throwing away wrapping paper, but you always have rolls left over. So I saw online, somebody said to just get like a the tube in the center or like a paper towel. Mm-hmm. And you just cut a slot in it so it's like a collar, and you put it around the wrapping paper, and then it won't be oh, loose and, and rolling everything. all Couldn't you also place? use like a piece of tape? To just kind of tape it to itself? No, because the tape, when well, you, you tape to it. safe, and then it rips. Yeah. Oh, well, okay. okay. Yeah. See. Clearly, I don't know what I'm doing. That's why I'm asking you guys for tips. But I also <laughs> have the tree problem, and I got needles just everywhere. And I have hardwood floors. with bit, It's old, so there's big gaps between them. Oh. So the needles will never all the way be gone because half they're of them got swept into the between. cracks, and then my feet pull them out as I walk around. Anyway. <laughs> Kevin, your life sounds rough. <laughs> it's, <laughs> And I'm sad because the holidays are over. <laughs> No, somebody told me, if you don't have the tree bag, which I always forget every year also, somebody told me just get an old sheet because I guess it'll get sap on it, so don't use a sheet that you want to use, use again. Sheet. And you just tip the tree over onto it, and then you wrap up the sheet around the tree, and then you can carry it out. So it's like an improvised tree bag. But here's the thing, is that there's always water left in your tree stand. Uh. So you just get like a turkey baster, and you suck all the water out. Mm-hmm. And then once the water's out, tip the tree over, take the stand off, wrap the sheet around it, carry it out. Be careful about the narrow doorways. Can I offer a slightly easier modification? Just take the tree out of the stand and dump the stand out. Just lift the tree up. But my feeling is you want to minimize the number of tree moves because right. every time you move it, a thousand needles fall off. Oh, that's, that's true. true. That's He's a good right. point. It good just point. seems annoying to me to baste. To I'd baste. Rather, and then to have a little water that's going to be in there and slip over. Slush. So maybe it's a balance between the two. I like your idea. I'm sorry. <laughs> Bah humbug. (laughs) Bah humbug from Peter Martin. The only one that I know of is one of our old issues. We did a really big, like, Christmas decorating package. And I remember Matt Goulet, who used to be on this podcast and is a— Loves Christmas. He does love Christmas. He was one of our editors here and is no longer here. He did all this insane research about where you put your Christmas lights, how to put them on your house, how to put them on a bush, how to make a tree look good. And at the end, he said you should wrap your lights around a coffee can— because it keeps them from getting tangled and you can see each individual light. And when you plug them in the next year, you can see exactly which lights are not lit up and they don't get tangled and it's wonderful. So, thanks, Matt. Thanks, Matt. Thanks, Goulet Matt. and Perpetuity and In Absentia. <laughs> Merry January. It's time again for your favorite segment of our podcast. Snowcat facts. Snowcat facts. Thank you for coming in and giving us the seasonal cats. The seasonal cat facts. Are these real cats? No, they are machines. Oh. They go over the snow. Okay. What does that mean? So they kind of look like, I don't know, they have like these big treads and they move very, very slowly, like think five miles per hour slow. But the pressure is distributed enough that they can sort of crawl over the snow rather than regular tires, which would get stuck in the snow. Oh. And that's the point of them? That is the point of them. They're very useful for things like getting around ski resorts, or if you are in the 1950s and exploring Antarctica for the first time, they were very useful. Oh, really? Yeah, so the term snowcat first came into our collective lexicon in 1955. The first transarctic expedition used three custom-made snowcats from the Tucker Snowcat, that's S-N-O hyphen cat company and they helped complete the first overland crossing of antarctica which took three years and only two of these snow cats returned one was sacrificed to the cause oh wow is it still there (laughs) 
I guess so. Hmm. And where does Snowcat come from? That He just named it that? Well, there are a couple of hypotheses. So one is that it's sort of a portmanteau of snow and then caterpillar tracks because that's the kind of treads that they have. Oh. And it was sort of a chicken and the egg situation whether this brand Snowcat came along before or after. It sort of became popularized. And then one article I read hypothesized that it's a Snowcat because it goes through snow and it has four legs. So some like the Tucker model have these four big treads and then some just have two. Uh, like a tank. Like a tank. Okay. Exactly. Interesting. So there's a very recent article, like two days ago, January 1st, 2018, about how snowcats are coming back into fashion for sort of like the rich and luxurious who own lots and lots of acres of snowy land. So this Tucker company that's still in business, they only make 50 or 100 of these machines per year, but a lot of them are kind of bespoke and they're pretty pricey. Like the, the cheapest personal snowcat that you can buy starts at $125,000. Oh, that's expensive. Yeah. And they're not even as pretty as a fancy car. Well, they're bright orange, so if you think that that's pretty. <laughs> so if you like that, <laughs> you can have you a get. beautiful snowcat. And uh, that's been Snowcat Facts. Snowcat Facts. If you're worried about the coming apocalypse, not that there's going to be a coming apocalypse, but if you are concerned that there may be a coming apocalypse, given North Korea and all that kind of stuff. Whose button is bigger? Yeah. Whose button is bigger? <laughs> I'd not care to find out, actually. So anyway, if you're concerned about the world becoming nuclear at any time in the near future, Peter Martin has put together a, what is it, a guide to what to do in the case of a nuclear attack? Yeah, like what you should be scared of and what you can do to try to protect yourself and if you can save yourself from it. So, so what should we be scared of? All I of mean, it. <laughs> all of it, for the most part. You, the biggest thing you want to be scared of is being close to where the bomb is dropped because, I mean, it, basically there are rings of destruction that come out of these things. If you're in the fireball, you're dead. Toast. I mean, everybody's pretty much dead. Like and actual then literal toast. Yeah. And then there's one ring outside of that that's a destructive wave, like a sound wave, basically, that okay. just knocks everything down. You're also dead if you're in that <laughs> ring, too. Okay. It's once you start getting a little farther outside of that that you have a chance of survival, even though most of the buildings are down. And then if you're not treated, you can get radiation burns from being in the next ring. It all really depends on the size of the bomb. Yeah, my so, question is, is there a ring where you're going to get radiation burns, so it'd probably be better to be just, like, right where the bomb falls? I mean, I talked to a guy who knows a lot more about this than I do and who has a name that I should get right. Jeff Schlegelmilch? <laughs> That's a tough one. He was very confident, not in the way that I just said his name, but he is the deputy director for the National Center of Disaster Preparedness at Columbia here in New York City. Oh, wow. So he studies this stuff all the time. Because I asked him, I was like, how sad do you go home every night? It's like, oh, it's, you know, it kind of wore off. And now, now he's fine. <laughs> I'm used to it these days. Kevin and I were talking about this. This thing made me feel good and bad at the same time. But it kind of made me feel a little better in that you realize, all right, if it happens, here's the stuff that's in trouble. And then here are all the people that actually are not in trouble and are going to be fine. Mm-hmm. And then what was interesting is that Jeff actually thought that the more likely nuclear attack that would happen would be from terrorists with something being trucked in and being blown up on the ground versus North Korea sending an ICBM all the way over here. Right, especially because like, we're going to get it by the time. I mean, we're in New York City. Yeah. We're going to knock it out of the sky before it gets here from I, Korea. Ideally. Who yeah. knows with what percentage well, our, our systems work to right. knock those things down. So let's see. What do you guys want? Some nuke facts? Yeah. Well, yeah. Well, what, how big are these rings? That's the first thing well, I want to so, know. <laughs> That's that's an important question. I mean, it really depends. The rings go up. They could be huge depending on the size of the bombs. The bomb that we dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki were 10 to 15 
kilotons, and every kiloton is a thousand pounds of TNT. Okay. But now they can be huge. Yeah, there's like megatons and stuff. Like, what's a megaton? Megatons are a thousand kilotons, and those are usually for hydrogen bombs. So hydrogen bombs versus atomic bombs. Fission is an atomic bomb, correct? Yeah. Fission is splitting of atoms. That's an atomic bomb. Okay. That's probably what we're going to be attacked by. That's what a terrorist would have. They wouldn't have a hydrogen bomb. They're not going to have a hydrogen bomb. Has anyone ever actually detonated a hydrogen bomb? Maybe in testing. We've done a bunch of crazy stuff out in Nevada. Yeah. But the hydrogen bomb, we're all super screwed. Right. I don't think you really worry. If that right. happens, hydrogen bomb is like, nothing to stress that's about. That's really end, end of the world. You're gone. Whenever people start talking about nuclear annihilation, I'm like, well, I live in New York City. So if right. it really comes here, like for real, like I'm out in the first wave. You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. <laughs> I don't think we're but, making it to survival town. But if it's an atomic bomb, depending on where it hit in the city, if it were 15 megatons, we'd be fine. Really? If it hit downtown. Megatons or kilotons? Kilotons, sorry. Okay. Megatons would be dead. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay. If it were kilotons and say they hit downtown at Wall Street, or something, we would be okay. I mean, we'd be in the path. There'd probably be some radiation that got up to us. Right. But we would certainly not die right away. And you have a little time to get out of fallout oh. if the bomb explodes from the ground. So what is fallout? Can you explain fallout, fallout to me? Fallout is when, so the mushroom cloud happens when a bomb has exploded at ground level. Mm-hmm. So it just takes a lot of material from the earth, shoots it up in the air. That's radioactive material. And then that gets caught by the winds and can go miles away. Oh. And so that stuff falls on your head. You breathe it in. It touches your skin. Then you can get Then radiation later. sickness. And this is where you would want to have a fallout shelter or something like that. Yeah. And you have, I think it's up to 10 minutes after the bombs drop before that stuff starts falling down. So you have time to get inside. It's not like immediately there's this rain of ash that's going to kill you. Right. So yeah, if you are in a bomb and you don't die from the first bit, get inside. Like go find somewhere to get inside. You don't want to be near windows. You ideally want to be inside a structure that if you could be at a business office, you want to be like up on the ninth floor. So you're away from the ground where most of the radiation is. And also you're protected from the walls. And then there's layers of floor that are Okay. And you want to be, so like internal, what about a basement? Basement. That's the best. Yeah. I mean, if you can find a basement. So you basically just want as much kind of insulation around yourself as possible. To protect yourself from radiation, we looked into what kind of materials could protect you and how much you would need of it. So if you're trying to build your shelter at home, five inches of steel is all you need. Um, (laughs) 99% of radiation. 16 inches of brick. Okay. Which doesn't seem that. That's not that hard. Yeah. Not that tough to do. Yeah. If you don't have those things, if you just do dirt, like packed dirt, two feet of packed earth will protect you from most of it. And actually three feet of water. I mean, if you could stay underwater long enough, you could get in a pool. You have to breathe the air. So like David Blaine, he's safe. He's fine. David Blaine's good to go. (laughs) Yeah. No, well, if you had an oxygen tank. Yeah. Then you could just get underwater and wait. I mean, you'd have to wait. You'd have to have enough oxygen to hang out there for two days to be fully, to feel like you were fully safe that all the radiation had passed. So there's a cool thing. If you really want to find out how big the bomb would have to be to get to you, if you just search for nuke map, this guy, Alex Wellerstein at the Stevens Institute of Technology made this cool thing. It's at nuclearsecrecy.com slash nuke map. You can pick the size of the bomb. You can pick the city that it falls on, and then you can explode it either from the air or from the ground. And you can see, you know, here are the rings of the air blast that's going to knock stuff over. Here are the rings of radiation, how far out they're going to go. Well, it's like Sims nuclear annihilation. Yeah, yeah. it's like pick your apocalypse. It's yeah. pretty crazy. But you put something in there, you put 15 kilotons on, and you realize... Okay, that's pretty bad. That's going to hurt a lot of people, but it's not going to destroy an entire Civilization city. as yeah. you know it, yeah. So the problem with that is that North Korea can do a much bigger bomb than 10 to 15 kilotons now, mm. assuming they can actually get it over here. We talked to Michael Elliman at it's a site called 38 North. He's a fellow for missile defense at the International Institute for Strategic Studies and an analyst for 38 North, which is just a site that tracks North Korea. Oh, because that's like the line, right? Isn't that where the North Korea-South Korea the line 38th is? 38th parallel. 38th parallel, yeah. So for a long time, they can only do 10 to 15 kilotons, but he said that... They actually detonated a thermonuclear weapon with a yield between 150 and 250 kilotons. Yikes. Which would take out most of Manhattan. But we do have some anti-missile capabilities, so yeah. that's pretty... Oh, we'll be fine. <laughs> we'll be uh, fine. 
where would you go if it happened in your house? Like, we would go to a bathroom. What would you do? If you can't get to the basement, you would try to go to the most central location of your house with the fewest windows Okay. to get in there. Some other cool things we learned. If you are looking to buy a place near a city and you're worried about you want to be in the spot that's probably safest from a nuclear attack if there is fallout, you just check the map of prevailing winds and pick your suburb based on where the winds are blowing out. Oh. So, like, in in New York, a lot of the time it blows to the north and east. So if you live in New Jersey... New Jersey gets the last laugh? New Jersey gets the last laugh. So move to New Jersey if you're really worried. But that's only if it's a ground attack. If it comes from the air, then there's no fallout. Right. This week's Curious Idiot comes with a bonus idiot. That would be Peter Martin, who yep. is our bonus idiot this week. And, and then just still the regular idiot. <laughs> Kevin Dusick is our standard idiot. And we also have Alex George here to answer the questions. Luckily, not an idiot. Hopefully. We'll find out. Hopefully not In some idiot. ways, yeah. <laughs> so you guys came by this question by talking about it. You were just having a conversation? What, what was the deal? Well, I think we were talking about antivirus software for desktop or laptop computers and then realized my iPhone is a computer should that have antivirus software? And I mean, Android, I don't mess with Android, but I'm sure they have the same worries. Yeah, I mean, we just didn't know. It, it seems like it must need it, but I haven't even heard of it. I assume that's something that people would try to sell me the second I turn my phone on every day. But so we thought, let's ask Alex. Let's ask Alex. It took me a little bit of research to find out exactly why. I didn't know this off the top of my head. So but you don't have it. Do you have antivirus software on your phone? I do not. And I would Living say... Crazy. Living dangerously, Alex <laughs> Pretty George. much everybody listening do not get antivirus anything for your phone. Certainly not Kaspersky. So they have a mobile app probably. I think Norton does too, right? Yeah. I just mean because then you're helping the Russians influence our next election. Oh, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, so why don't you need it? So the way phones are built that's different from like a Windows computer or whatever is the software that... That comes from somewhere like the App Store or the you know Google Play Store is very deeply separated from the real core of the actual phone itself. So it'd be much harder for something from an app to actually get into the parts that could really do damage for it. The design is basically, it's called sandboxing, if you've ever heard that term. An example of this is on a desktop, you can kind of drag and drop stuff between applications. And that's something that's very recently come to like iPads and things like that. That's why, because it doesn't allow this kind of real cross communication like that. Okay. The effect of that too is that because everything operates through an app store and a company like Apple specifically, they're really strict about what gets in, what gets downloaded, that kind of thing. So it's really hard to get something like a virus or anything like the Trojan horse or anything like that that we heard back in the day. Even if you opened an attachment on your email or something, that email is sort of siloed and it's not giving it access to the main processor of the phone. Correct. Okay. Yeah. And so that would be the way of saying that there's no key loggers or these other things that you know, we used to hear back in the early 2000s about going on into phones. And it's just basically because of the way it's set up. And is that true of all Apple products? Because I seem to remember back in the day that Apples were less susceptible to viruses compared to PCs. Is that true? Is that for the same reason or no? Similar, kind of. That has to do with stuff that's more complicated than I understand about how the operating system works, but it's a similar idea, yeah. Okay. Remember how if you used an old PC and one program would crash, the whole thing would crash? Yes. But with an Apple product, you can kind of turn off whatever one is actually not running correctly. It's a similar idea. Okay. Oh, right, like force quit versus any other. Yeah, the blue screen of death the blue screen or of death, control yeah. delete, that kind of thing. Oh, I so, don't miss the blue screen of death, guys. Nobody does. <laughs> is this true for Android phones, too? Because I've always thought of Apple as like an exclusive gated neighborhood, but Android is like... <laughs> I grew up. You know? Just the Wild West, yeah. 
I had to do a little bit of research to make sure that I was accurate about it, but Android is similarly really secure. It's set up very in a kind of a similar way, so you're not going to have these kind of desktop problems on your phone. The Google Play Store has this entire section called the Bouncer, which analyzes it, you know, the software that's coming in. But that said, every once in a while, somebody will, say, make a fraudulent Pokemon Go or some app, you know, and it looks like it just has the title and the graphic of the one that everybody's downloading, but you can download a different version of it. That hasn't been really catastrophic or anything like that, but that would be the only way you could get something in like that. So it's kind of boring that all the same ideas apply as before. Don't open email attachments and kind of look at something before you download it. But the potential for disaster on a phone is so much less than on a desktop computer. So if you're worried, open it on your phone. Yeah. Right? Because occasionally I've seen some things and been like, I kind of want to know. <laughs> Just maybe it's real, maybe it's not, but I'm going to check. And so if I check it on my phone, it's safer than I'm not exposing my computer to anything bad. Yeah. If you just absolutely have to open an email attachment and see what <laughs> that person's He's the you. bonus idiot, so yes, he does. <laughs> this is yeah. comforting. Yeah, yeah. You rarely, you rarely get comforting news in terms of... As an idiot? Uh, <laughs> yes, no. In terms of like futuristic iPhones and yeah. technology and everything, the way it's going. So it's nice to get some. Yeah. Don't open email attachments and you'll be good. Cool. Well, thank Peter you. Uh, do them. you guys, do you feel enlightened? <laughs> yeah. I feel less idiotic because it turns out we hadn't right. heard of it because they just don't really exist. So maybe we are smarter and we've come up with the future of virus protection for something that doesn't need it. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> That's where the money is. For our testing table this week, we got Matt Allen to come in here because he's been testing survival gear, not because he's had to, I hope. No. It's been pretty gnarly outside. I wouldn't be surprised <laughs> if you were like, hold up in your house, like we're never going outside ever again. I could. Yeah. I could now. So what were you testing the survival gear for? Yeah, so this is for our March issue. I did uh, sort of a package for it on best survival gear. I also tried to make it a lot of stuff that has dual purpose, things you can take outdoors. In addition to some things you just need to have at your house, like a solar generator, you know, in case of a long-term power outage, that sort of thing. So it's a mix of more useful camping gear that, you know, doubles as survival gear and then just the hardcore. But uh, I brought a few things in to talk about today that I think everybody can enjoy. Yeah, that's the problem with survival gear is you don't get to use it unless the world ends. Yeah, <laughs> that's a real bummer. So that's kind of a bummer. Yeah, it's kind of a waste of money unless mm-hmm. the world ends. Well, cool. What did you bring? It looks like you have some random things over there. Yeah, I've got a table of fun survival stuff over here. Uh-huh. I'll start with the CRKT Terzola Survival Rescue Knife. Whoa. Uh, yeah, so everybody needs a good knife in the woods surviving. This is a good medium size drop point knife. Wait, what does that mean, drop point knife? It's sort of just the shape of it, as you see. Well, that's quite a knife. Mm-hmm. Yes, uh, not too intimidating, but it's a little over four inches long blade length but the fun thing is the handle screws open and there's a small compartment inside that has uh, sewing needles fish hooks and a little bit of line to use one question how do you screw it open if you're in the middle of the woods with a key with the quarter okay Okay. oh quarter that's a good idea yeah and so it's a beautiful knife and there's even a hole in sort of in the base of the blade you see here Mm -hmm. that you can use to attach it to a long stick if you need to make a spear oh wow yeah hopefully it doesn't come to that but (laughs) there's some other nice survival stuff built into it so you can see there's paracord which is just like a great utility rope that's very lightweight but very, very strong. Mm-hmm. And then in the sheath for the knife has a signaling mirror on the back. Uh-huh. And then one side of the sheath has a rod for striking a spark and the other side can sharpen the knife. Wow. Yeah. So that is a pretty useful knife. It's a very useful knife. How right? much does that knife cost? It's $90. Oh, well, that's not even bad. It's not terrible and it's a lovely knife even if you never have to, you know, survive in a pop-up. Right. Pop-up. It almost seems like the kind of thing where like if you're going to go hike the Appalachian Trail, maybe like choose that as your knife. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's, it's big enough. I think you can probably use it for hunting, for cleaning. And it 
it's not like a ridiculously scary seven-inch knife or something crazy like that. It's not a crocodile Dundee. Right, it's, it's not like a Bowie knife. Those. No, no. Yeah. It's just like, yeah, good. Although you did get a machete in the office recently. Yeah, well, that's for another story where we're going to the jungle. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, I'm not going to the jungle, but somebody else is for me. Okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Probably wise. All right. If you need a machete to go there. Speaking of jungles, the next thing I have here was actually be great in one. It's the 510 Access Knit Shoe. Basically, it's what you call like a canyoneering shoe, a shoe that's good for hiking, good for moving, and that dries very, very quickly. So it's made for people that like their feet are going to get wet at some point. Okay. So if you're in like a disaster area, provided there aren't pathogens floating in the water where you'd need waders or waterproof boots because, you know, the sewage spill. If it's just like a lot of water around, these are great because on a hot day, they can go from like wet to dry in one hour. Wow. Yeah. We were talking about this earlier because you were saying that you talked to somebody in the special. Yeah, I was, talk- about uh, these. I was talking to uh, some uh, former Army Rangers. Yeah. Mm-hmm. For people who listen to this podcast every week, just heard us talking to some of the folks that test Polar Tech. And he was basically saying that when they test it with the special forces, they're going to hide in the mud. They're going to hide in the water. So they're going to get wet. So the way they test outdoor usefulness mm-hmm. or breathability isn't waterproofness because they're like, well, you're going to get wet anyway. It's how quickly it dries. Yeah. And so that's what you were saying about these. They dry super quickly. Yeah, they dry super quickly. They yeah. have a great sole for both wet and dry surfaces. Like if you just like to go rock climbing, this is a great approach shoe, mm-hmm. even if you never have to worry about survival. But yeah, it's great for jungles, as I started out saying, just because it dries so quickly. Yeah. What's an approach shoe? Oh, approach shoe. That's like if you need a shoe, like a hiking shoe with a very sticky bottom. So you're maybe like scrambling up some rocks before you get to like the rock face you're going to climb up. Ah, okay. Mm -hmm. Okay, cool. And then what's the third thing? Third thing is even more fun. It's the uh, McKenna Bottled and Bond Bourbon. Ooh. Wait, what's this for, surviving-wise? Well, you know, I was talking to a lot of people, and, you know, a good bourbon seems like an all-purpose, you know, splash it on a wound or, you know, comfort yourself as the world ends. Right, uh, right. Mm -hmm. Very important. Yeah, and probably you could also trade it. I mean, I feel like booze will be like gold. Yeah, it'll probably also be like gold. But right now, it's only like 30 bucks a bottle and delicious. (laughs) So invest in it. Yeah, and a hat tip to uh, drinks author Robert Simonson, who tipped me off to this. It's a 10-year-old, very affordable, bottled in bond, which means it's 100 proof. All around, just a delicious whiskey to have in your shelf in case something goes wrong, or even if it doesn't. Right. Nice. And Mm -hmm. of these three, I mean, I feel like I can guess your answer. Mm. Of your three, which one would you be most likely to buy? Well, I already have bought the bourbon, so (laughs) So that's that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And wait, and how much was the bourbon again? I believe you can find for as little as $30. That's awesome. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's it's from Heaven Hill, so it's guys that really know how to make brown liquor. Yeah, those guys are great. Mm -hmm. Cool. I like those shoes, I think. I mean, they're men's shoes, but I feel like if I were going to buy one of these, I've got whiskey at home, Mm so maybe. I'd go for they're like all birds for survivalists. Here, check them out. You can see it's got super grippy sole. No real seams to it either. Do they make women's? Yeah. Maybe I'm into it. Mm -hmm. Cool. Happy surviving. Happy survival to you. That's our show, y'all. The most useful podcast ever is produced by the staff of Popular Mechanics and edited by Brandcasters Inc. at www.brandcastingu.com. We'd like to thank Sarah Bentley and Andy Bowers from Panoply and Popular Mechanics editor in chief Ryan D'Agostino. Please subscribe to our show on iTunes. While you're there, leave us a comment. We'd love to know what you think. And if you want to read more about life hacks of all sorts, you should check out our website, popularmechanics.com. While you're there, you can subscribe to the print and digital edition of Popular Mechanics magazine for just $13.99 a year. I'm Jacqueline Detweiler. Thanks for listening.